Hello, everyone, and welcome to another one-on-one episode of We Need to Talk. Today, joining me on the show is author, Emmy Award-winning film director and academic, Omawale Akatunde. Omawale is the former professor and department chair of Black Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and is currently a diversity consultant with the Omaha Public School System. Wale, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very glad to be here. How is uh, the weather where you're at? You know what? It is uh, extraordinarily uh, nice. Uh, we've been in the 90s every day, so oh, we're wow. defying all kinds of forecast <laughs> expectations for Nebraska. Uh, is that, that where you're born and raised? No, I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama. Really? In Mobile? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. So you're from the South to the Midwest. Uh, yeah, about as south as you can get because yeah. you know, Mobile is literally on the Gulf Coast. Yep, yep, it's at the tip. Oh wow! So you've you've seen quite a bit then, as far as the yeah. country changing over the years, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, I, I want to start with kind of what the current political climate is in this country. You know, we've obviously seen a lot of tensions, and I, I would like to say that the administration is kind of fan flames with racial tensions currently. Um, over the years, what have you seen changed and where do you compare where we are now with race relations to, for example, you know, like the civil rights movement and things that happened back in the day? I'm just curious to see, like, what you think has changed, what hasn't changed. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I kind of sort of have gotten to the point where I don't even like to think about race relations in this country as a metamorphosis. You know, mm-hmm. we have been since the inception of this nation. Uh, engulfed uh, in a racist infrastructure right. uh, that has been uh, paralleled and defined by systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And the very fact that we came here uh, as enslaved Africans and the centuries of abuse uh, mentally, psychologically, historically, being left out of the historical narrative, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise and polarized in every uh, way, it's really hard for me to think of, think of it in that way. However, I will hasten to add that I am very inspired and motivated uh, by the current movement, uh, because as a university professor, my uh, field of expertise has always been systemic racism mm-hmm. and how race, class, and gender define us. So to see white people evolved to the point where they not only acknowledge I'm white and whiteness carries a privilege with it, have now become conscious of it and are now using it to liberate and expand the rights of uh, persons of color. Not expand, equalize. Right, exactly, exactly. It's good to see. So with the current movement, you know, a lot of people still don't really understand the phrase Black Lives Matter. For some reason, they've... uh, added the words only Black Lives Matter in front of it and not all lives matter, which is the rebuttal. How do you explain to somebody what this specific movement is about and get them to fully understand that it's not something that's excluding anybody, but it's trying to get a group of people to be included? I fought, um, and this is probably going to surprise you, but I I fought so-called Black, and I want to come back and talk about racism and social construction, mm-hmm. but I fought so-called Black academics and persons who are out there, their inability to uh, define and explicate what that means baffles me. 
I'll tell you how you respond to that. All lives matter implies that white people are at an equal footing uh, with black people in the society such that there is not an epistemological default, a norm by which white has become neutralized and normalized to the extent that it starts to see itself equal to mm -hmm. other quote unquote racial positionalities. And further, uh, like when I was uh, a chair of the Black Studies Department, we would regularly have students come in my class and say, well, we don't have a white studies department. How come the blacks get their own department? <laughs> and I'm like, the University of Nebraska is, is. a white studies department. And so they don't get that white is not a parallel racial group. It is the group right. by which all races are defined. Therefore, yes. if you say all lives matter, you are suggesting that white people have an equal footing and are parallel entities to black people in the first place. Right, right. Such that all lives matter means why wouldn't it include everyone? And the point here is white is the definition, the epistemological default by which norm is defined. So one more point on that. So to parallel when students come in and say, we don't have a white studies department and are missing the point that white <laughs> is the norm. Right, History, it's the default. All things, yes, all things undefined are white. The way that they're seeing it in the context of all lives matter is the world itself in which we live is, for example, uh, a white studies department. Right, exactly. All history you that we learned here. is exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. It's, I've always just found it so interesting. And, and I always joke, you know, I feel like white people want to be oppressed as well. And and I, I'm not quite <laughs> sure why, but it, that's how it comes across no. when, they, when they say that, you know? I think that you're absolutely correct. Absolutely, positively correct. And let me tell you why, because I agree with that too. Mm -hmm. But I think it's not just... Um, the fact that we can see that, that is a characteristic of an oppressor-oppressed relationship. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, uh, the almighty Paulo Freire, uh, who wrote uh, the classic uh, Pedagogy of the Press. Okay. And the word pedagogy means the art of teaching. And mm -hmm. what he says is exactly what you just said, mm. Fernanda, that one of the ways an oppressing group tries to assuage its guilt, so to speak, is they want to act as if they occupy that space too. So, right. you know, how could I really be your oppressor? Well, right. I'm having the same kinds of experiences you are, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. you're absolutely correct. So within your, your work that you've done within the education system, you've worked in public schools, you've been a professor at a university. How have you seen systemic racism kind of make its way into education? Because I know a lot of people, specifically white people, will, will kind of use that, you know, well, if you work hard enough, you'll get to this place. Or if you study hard enough, you'll get to this place. But what they don't understand is that a lot of um, educational systems are set up to make people of color fail. So in your experience, what have you seen? Well, they're not set up to make schools fail. They don't come in. The education system itself is a white racist infrastructure mm. by virtue yeah. of its reality. Right. You, you know, right. again, it goes back to what you just said, Melinda, about uh, uh, oh, oppressors wanting to be part of this oppressed group so that they can, I don't know, I guess, 
um, experience what you experienced. But <laughs> right. you, no, no, seriously, the education system itself, the base narrative, I want to go back to that little trite example again about black studies, white studies. White people literally don't think they're in a narrative. And if you look mm. at what's happening with these statues, you're tearing down my statues. In other words, you're taking away my whiteness. When whiteness is the reality, the world is a white studies department. We're just a, an offshoot to that. So therefore, the educational narrative itself, the historical narrative itself, not how we treat it, not how we present it to children, not, not how curriculum itself is formulated, Education itself, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. racist um, uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So how can it not but carry with it an implicit white racist, male, cisgender, biosex, patriarchal? Uh, <laughs> 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 I can go there, Melinda. Uh, how can it not carry those elements implicitly within it? Right, 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 right. And it's so interesting because I, I, I definitely have had that experience. You know, they'll even say the same thing about like, why is there a BET? Why is there a Black entertainment? It's because, you know, you turn on the television, it's predominantly white entertainment. I do think that that's changing now. But when it comes to history, you know, it, it's it's interesting with these statues that people don't fully understand why it's triggering for people of color, because in a way it's like, it's been, you're glorifying somebody. I, I, po I posted this question on Facebook. I said, you know, if somebody stole your children and sold them to the highest bidder, where would you want their statue posted? Where would you want their statue put? And I think that people don't realize that it's, it's hurtful to see people that created this history for our people be glorified in, in, in a sense. And, I, and I, I'm struggling with explaining to people, like, I understand why people don't want those statues, why people don't want to see them. And they weren't even put up during those times. They were put up later on in life, kind of almost, I feel like, as a, as a fear tactic for people of color. Well, listen, again, we're in total accord. <laughs> I think, um, no, seriously, yes, they don't get it. Well, let me tell you how I see it to people, Melinda. I tell them all the time, a fish doesn't know it lives in water. Mm. And let mm. me explain what I mean by that in terms of whiteness. It goes back. See, now, a lot of people of color think white people get it and they're just being stupid. And I'm telling you, they literally don't get it. And when <laughs> we get to talking about intersectionality, I'm going <laughs> to prove it to you. Now, let me give you an example. I'm going to go back to that trite black studies, white studies example again. Okay. If you live in a world where your experience has become the normative lens such that you don't know that you're a fish in water, mm. it's just, it's endemic to you. It's, it's as natural as everything. Your history, all those things. Because when those students will come in, because I'm telling you it happened every semester. Oh, I'm sure. They will come <laughs> in and say, yeah, well, we don't have a white status department. Now, persons of color laugh. Because they don't, we see that white is the default. Right. I'm going to tell you a really quick one. It, it, this is a good one because let me tell you, I was very demanding of my students. I think I play a lot in these white people's evolution to the point of understanding your white, what whiteness means, and let's not play games. Each semester, they had to go out into the real world, Melinda, and find me an example of how white had become so subsumed as norm that it had become so invisible that you couldn't even see it as white. My mm. favorite, it's my favorite. I had a group of students 
who went to Barnes and Nobles. Remember when they actually had bookstores? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you ever think you say that? Right. Okay. But they went to Barnes and Nobles, right? And it was like, I, I would divide them up into groups and they had to go out in the real world and come back and bring me something that made me go, you see it, you got it. Now you understand that white is the default norm that right. you belong to. So they go to Barnes and Noble, right? And they have a camcorder. Now, right away, Melinda, I'm like, okay, you got a camcorder. You know, walking in the store, nobody thinks anything. Right. And this was when I was a professor at the University of Wyoming, right? Mm -hmm. So they go into Barnes and Noble, and, you know, a white guy is standing behind the counter, five white kids standing up there with a camcorder. He doesn't say anything, right? Mm -hmm. So they say, um, our professor is uh, told us to come out. Uh, because we he's our multicultural education professor and he wanted us to go out and find out uh how um varied uh the you know multicultural uh was being uh indicated. So they said we'd like to know if you have in this store uh books uh by black authors. And the guy lights up. He says, Yes, of course we do. You know, we have we, we have that representation here at Barnes and Noble. So they go up the steps and he takes them to uh the black author section and he says, Here you are, you know, we got Baldwin, you know, we got right, we have mm -hmm. everybody, and we're very, very proud. And then they turn to him and say, But our professor wanted us to make sure that all groups have been represented. Could you please take us to your white author section? Mm. And it gets quiet. And he says, what? Our professor said he wanted us to see every racial group represented here. Where's your white author mm -hmm. saying? Hmm. And then he turns and he looks at the camera. He says, shut that off. Now, wow. all of a sudden, you're coming to the camera. Because now, even though he's not saying anything, He's understanding, well, we don't have a white author section. And he's also understanding the deeper meaning. And the kids, I'm in the classroom screaming because I'm going, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Because yes, the default isn't defined here. And then he finally right. says, look, you guys got to go. And they were like, why? We're just asking to, for you to show us each racial group's representation. Mm. Why are you getting angry? And he was like, I want you guys to, so you see. That was a whole lot, but I still want to get back to this point. Yeah. The reason they're upset about the statues is they think that white is, they don't see history as a white narrative. They see it as a neutral narrative in which white people are participants in. Mm -hmm. So in their minds, these statues represent not the historical narrative itself, but the white race's representation. So in other words, you're taking away my representation right. in a world in which my experience is representation. Right, right. Let a brother speak. I think it's one of the best explanations that I've heard of that. Really, it's great. I'm and I love, I, love, I love that experiment. <laughs> I love yeah. that experiment yeah. because I think that people don't, realize that whiteness is the default for everything. When you look at films, yes, when you look yes, at television, when you look yes. at um, literary fiction and books and everything, it really is the default. And I even got into an argument with someone on Twitter uh, when I was talking about the Oscars, for example, and how, it, you know, when you choose the, to be nominated, who's nominated for best actress, the, um, for best director, it's always defaulted to whiteness. And the only time that you see black people or other people of color get those nominations is when they play into a trope that fits into a stereotype. 
And it's well, wait a minute. I want I want to I want to comment on that in two ways. Yeah, now, yeah. Um, I, I I'm I'm absolutely of course uh, in agreement with you about that point because again the same concept. They see the Oscars as a set of neutral standards that if anyone reaches them, you get an Oscar. Right. If I'm just gonna give it to, so what they don't get is the standards for an Oscar. Cinema itself, how we define good movie. Those things are not inherently in existence. Somebody had to create standards. And I can do the same thing and explain it to people what IQ means. IQ is a social construct. Whoever gets to make the IQ test is not just <laughs> determining what your IQ is. They're establishing the standard for what IQ is. Right. Because whoever gets to say, if you know these 10 things, you're smart. And if you know these eight, you're okay. Mm -hmm. If you know these six, you're fairly intelligent. That's not a neutral instrument because whoever establishes the instrument is also by a parallel associating and creating for us what it means right. to be smart. Right. Back to Oscars. That's what they're missing. See, they see the Oscars as a neutral set of standards that if that person meets them, you get an Oscar. The fact that it's implicitly biased from bottom to top, from who gets to write a script, who gets to direct a movie, mm -hmm. how a movie gets into theaters, who goes to see them, what are we using to constitute that is one thing. Now, this is where I part with you. I part with you, and no, this is going to surprise you. At first, you're going to say, well, how can you, you're a filmmaker. I part with you with the idea that the roles that we represent are tropes. And let me tell you why. And I know you're saying, are you kidding me? Hattie <laughs> McDaniel, they were all maids and butlers and pushers. But let me tell you something. I had an experience. When I was at the New York Film Academy, mm -hmm. uh, we had to make uh, our first films. We couldn't have sound. So they were like, you know, movies are visual experiences, you know? And I got no, my white guy voice I can give you. <laughs> And you really can't do that on Mawali. You know, like there's a self standard and we all know them. So I was there, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we had to mix a little student film. So there were only like, I was, there were two black people in my class too. And let me tell you about the first one. I wanted to see him, you know, the first night we had this little social. I was like, man, you know, you know, we're the only black people in the hill. We got to stick together. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. I really don't see race. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> There's really, like, I, I really don't see. I was like, oh, my God. I, it's all white people. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was going to, we had to create this little five-minute film because it had to be visual storytelling. And in one of them, my, my, my little story was about black hick actor comes to L.A., wants to be a star, but doesn't realize, you know, what's really there all the decades. And I called it Hollywood of Zion. And we shot down there. I cast this black, you know, he went through this series of things, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the Mexican guy comes up trying to sell him jewelry, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. the black, then the hooker comes up, and, you know, she's like, hey, baby, you know, what's up? The black girl said to me, she said, why do I have to be a prostitute? I said, you don't. Your part is that of Platon. Mm. What we have done in Black America, we have been, listen to me, 
every story needs to be told. Yeah. Everybody has a story. Absolutely. The dope dealer, everybody. So this is my point. Black people have gotten to the point that we cannot separate art from reality. Now, are there too many of those characterizations? Yes. But there's nothing wrong with them. They've existed. And she has a story, too. Black people have gotten too much into, I only want to see Black people portrayed like this. Bullshit. I'm sorry. Right. You can cuss. Uh, You're fine. (laughs) But I'm not going to do it again. No. We can't separate that. Right. Well, this is my thing, though, because I do agree with that. I do agree that everybody has a story that needs to be told, and there are different versions of Black people. But the problem is, is that when you go back to, for example, whiteness and the default, there are way more positive tropes that are showed and characters that are showed in with white people than there are with black people. And I think that's well, the issue. It's not consistent that they're showing yeah. different types of people without with throughout all different races, you know? Yeah, but it depends on whether or not the character that you're portraying is similar to that part. For example, if I was making a movie about the 40s and how black people were portrayed, it, oh, I got a better example. You're really going to love this. Uh, about four years ago, I hosted the African American uh, Filmmakers Association uh, annual event, and I, I know you're in the in LA. So I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know they call themselves the Black Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> and that year, Selma was the winner, right? Okay. And I was kind of like the uh, 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 what's his name, the little Kevin. I was like the Kevin Hart. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i'm supposed to keep it going and tell it right. too i'm really good at you can't tell that already but uh so anyway selma was the winner right and um and i was like blown away melinda because you know i had i had not ever met oprah and tyler and all these people so i was trying to add like you know well, hell, i belong to you <laughs> right and yeah so the show goes on so Ava, that year, Selma was the winner. So that's why that group was there. So Ava DuVernay comes up. She told the most interesting story. She said, we were in Selma and we were shooting uh, the famous uh, Pettis Bridge scene. Mm-hmm. And she says, I got everything, you know, the cameras and all this, Jim Arms. It's like, and I'm a news director. This is my first time. She's so excited. So in the script, the black people are coming across the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, they're yelling all these racial slurs. And so she says, I call action. And the white people don't say anything. She's like, what? why don't you tell me? We, we just can't say nigger. We're just like, you're, this is a film about the 60s. You're recreating an event. This, they didn't say African-Americans. Right. African-American. So here you are on set reenacting a particular period and the white people won't say nigger because of that thing. Now, back to your point. The problem with us is we've evolved to the point. Like, did you know that they have a new scrubbed version of uh, um, uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn where a nigger joke is now African-American Joseph, and I'm not making that up. Hmm. See, you can't change historical context in me. I'm telling you, I agree that there were movies where we were always portrayed as these in these spaces, but that's what we were in those spaces. Hmm. We were not senators. We were the maid and the butler, and you can't just go and interject 
a 21st century narrative into that. For sure, for sure. But I think that there needs to be more uh, modern scenarios where you do see Black people in a positive light. And I think that that's, like, for no, example... I never, because I don't think... So I, I hear what you're saying. As mm-hmm. a viewer, you're saying every time I watch a movie, all I see are Black people as made. And what I'm saying to you, when they were making these movies, all the Black people were made. And if you change that, to make it what we call positive, by the way, which is also a social concern, because that which constitutes positivity is also a cultural perspective. But I, I get your point. Right. I get your point, but I'm telling you, we've taken it to the point where certain lives are not allowed to mm. exist. No, I, I hear you. I hear you for sure. I just, okay. for example, like, I'll say, you know, the movie The Best Man and The Best Man Holiday that came out, right? Okay, and I actually like those, even if they're stupid. Right, <laughs> but, but, there's, but there's a lot of movies that have, if you took it out, all the black cast that are all white cast, and it's pretty much the same thing and they'll do better, right? But they viewed that movie as a uh-huh. race-based film. I don't know if you saw that article, they called it a race-based film, just because uh-huh. it was an all-black cast. But to me, uh-huh. that is a movie that anybody can relate to. It's about and a family. all-black, you know? heterosexual, cisgender cast that I, as a black gay man watching, saw myself absent from the narrative. Mm-hmm. There was a joke between Terrence, the Terrence Howard character, and something like, maybe we should think of a fact. Listen, mm, yeah. everybody is viewing the world through their lens. So That's you true. see that as a great thing. And I saw it as one of the most heinous examples of Black heterosexual uh, normative value imposed on me because I don't exist in that world mm. of Black uh, people dating and going through all this stuff. Right. I wasn't there. And yeah. the one time I was mentioned, it was to make a joke about this guy who they felt wasn't project Terrence Howard's character wasn't projecting a masculine masculine energy. energy yeah. Were you a fact? <laughs> See, that's why when we get to intersectionality, yeah. I'm going to show you black people become white people. They have the same imposed mm. set of normative value through, and they'll tell you in a heartbeat. I had a friend the other day tell me he was like, "Well, I, I was talking about how these intersectionalities." were parallel and the same. He said, oh, no, they're not. Because you know what? I didn't choose to be black. I said, which brings me to an interesting question. If you had had a choice, what would you have chosen? Mm. And if that, that question actually goes the same for white people who think that there's it's equal, there's equality, well, would you switch places with the black person? And, and the same thing with black people. If you go to the intersectionality stuff, would you exchange uh, uh, places with a gay person or an atheist right. or a trans right. person? Right. We still have a normative lens. And when we get Absolutely. to that, I'll be glad to talk about it. But we're guilty of the same thing, except when we do it, we will proclaim. But in our case, you really aren't right. You know, you right. really weren't intended. I know I'm like that about you, but you really deserve it. I don't. Right, right. Well, let, let's transition. Let's get into intersectionality. So I, I, I recently had a, a round table in regards to pride. And I, I've talked about, you know, racism within the LGBTQ community. And I've talked about homophobia within the Black community. And I know that this is something that you are very passionate about. So let's, let's take these two separate things. Let's start first with racism within the LGBTQ community. We see it a lot. We hear about it. 
there is, and you know, um, a lot of intersectionality as far as including uh, uh, blacks that identify in that community, specifically black transgender people, they have the hardest time I've noticed. So what, um, I just wanna hear your views on that and what you've seen and what you would like to change within the LGBTQ community when it comes to racism. Let me tell you something. We're gonna go back to my same white status department. Now, now. I love you, that department. You, I, I know. I'm gonna, I know. <laughs> we need to get it accredited yeah, some yeah, kind of way, right. by the NC or whatever. <laughs> but I want to go back to the to the same point. And, and 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 this is not directed at you at all. I'm simply saying the discourse itself. Now, and and, and again, this is not a, a thing at you. It's what we all do. But listen to the way we're talking about it. What you said was there's this uh, dysfunction in it. How does racism function in it? We refer to that community as something else. Uh, the LGBT thing is just like the white thing. In other words, the way we talk about it is you're this group over here mm. and we need to appreciate you by doing these things for you. We live in an implicit heterosexist reality. Yeah. But you see what I'm saying? I do, we, I do. We still are talking about it the way white people talk about us. You're this disenfranchised group that we all need to learn how to appreciate so that you feel like you're a part of it. When the system itself is the problem. It's, that's the reason why White people were like, they're good and bad cops. This isn't about individuals. It's about systems, system, institutions. Yep. Yep. Back to your LGBT point. Look how we're characterizing it. What can we do to address this in it? Like, we exist outside mm -hmm. of this normative infrastructure. Further, further. What gets me is, just like with white people, when they say things like some of my friends are black, where they just feel like because I'm white, I'm in the, the power position of granting acceptance to you. Mm. I can talk about you in the third person. We can say you all and those people and all of that. But when black people do that to uh, people who uh, exist in those other human defining spaces, we do the exact same damn thing talk about you as a third party. Gotcha. They automatically feel that just like white people feel by virtue of being white, I have the power to tell you things like I accept you, some of my friends are like you, and despite the fact that they're like you and I don't have to accept you, I still see you as a human being just like me. You don't see that in that same argument. Mm. That just because I'm straight, I'm automatically in a position to grant you humanness and acceptance ah. and create organizations for you to show you that even though you're not like me, I still see you like a human being. Really? Mm. And that's has that been your experience in eternity, has basically? Been yours as a black, as a woman? Absolutely. About, Absolutely. Saying, but yeah. That, but then you, you can ask that question. I'm saying that's for any group. When people talk yeah. about women, don't they do the same thing? It's true. Person? Okay. It's that. true. Yeah. It's that. Being treated. The only difference is the, the treatment of black people to gay persons in our community is the identical thing as what white people do and treat us. They're able to have little sad conversations about mm. what the, the thing that's more horrible is it's one thing to be a member of an oppressed group. But to have the oppressed group 
can be a, uh, yeah. They are them to them. That's that's her. Yeah. Because black, that that's how we. That it's just, and if you look, it is the same set of imposed values. Yeah. But you are just inherently abnormal. And when I say things to them, like. Just like race is a social construct, sexuality is a social construct. This is why black people can't understand trans reality because they think that gender and sex are the same thing. Which they're not, which they're absolutely not. I will admit though, it, 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 I'm always open to learning and, and you're teaching me so much right now and I'm very, very grateful for that. But I, I did take me a while to get to that and understand what that meant for sexuality and gender to be two different things. And sexuality, itself it can be dissected into a dichotomy. Absolutely, absolutely. They are also constructed spaces that we've created based on our idea of how normative values work. It is not an inherently normal space. So I'm just saying to you, when we go inside that dynamic and look at how it subdivides, we become the white people. Mm. And hold up, let me give just one step deeper. Even in that community, as a gay man, gay white people don't see how they are a default. They will tell black gay people of color, look, we're in the same boat. Oh, no, the hell we're not. We're not even on the same damn ship. Mm -hmm. So even within that sexuality context, we're still black to gay white people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Black folk need to sit down and and have a talk with themselves. Because we, let me tell you, we have been caught up in the same lens issue. So how would you suggest kind of bridging that gap? Uh, the first thing we need to do is get rid of the black church and our insistence on Christianity is the basis for how we shape our reality. Interesting. Much of it is passed okay. through the black church. Mm. You know, I, I was having a, a conversation with some people because uh, I, I don't have a, like a real show like you, but uh, I do have conversations, and we were talking about uh, uh, this was when the officers had gotten corrected, and I went off and like you know black folks are not a gospel choirs and preachers for getting ready to come out to Jesus Christ, and Jesus wasn't around for four hundred years of enslavement, bombing, killing Jesus at that, and not only that, I said in Ephesians six five after God did all His wonderful work sat down and wrote a book and said to you, slave, obey your earthly master. Mm-hmm. Honor, love, and respect them the same as you were Christ. I'm like, really? Right. So you, you got a God who created all this stuff and then sat down and wrote a book telling you to be an obedient slave. But let me get to my We have been so brainwashed through religious dogma, our insistence on Christianity as the basis for our norm. I don't know that we will because they preach that in church. Black people, it's gonna be very hard to bridge the gap because we have become very dyed in the wool Christians. And Mm. I tell them all the time, there are two elements to colonize the people, Melinda. You have to first, not allow them to speak their language and don't allow them to, to do anything but practice your religion. And let me tell you how that colonizes. As you know, words are not just representations. They evolved out of social experience, meaning that the way that you think is constituted constituted through language. It forms and shapes reality. If there's not a word for something, the thing doesn't exist. Hmm. Language is a 
powerful mechanism because yeah. if you have to think through my language, it's language also creates possibility. Mm-hmm. The things you have a word for. Religion teaches us to become obedient and to accept things that don't make sense. Example, mm-hmm. talking snakes suddenly, um, well, it could be on the wall. I don't know. I mean, I personally haven't seen a serpent, but it could happen. I sat in a classroom, and I'm not lying to you, Melinda. I retired in 2018. It got to the point where I had black PhD students saying things to me like, they don't believe the world is round. I don't believe in a solar system because if a solar system, I'm not lying to you. And this wasn't one or two. This is at a doctoral level class hmm. where all, I had to take a flashlight and a baseball to class because they were saying to me, I can't believe in the solar system because if I do, I have to buy into the idea that the earth came into existence through all of these atomic particles growing into a planet. And if that's true, then I can't explain how it got people. I said, of course I could. I can tell you all about speciation. I can tell you how we started as bacteria and water and evolved into fish and then into reptiles with lungs that came onto land and became mammals who became apes who are humans. But they don't want to accept that as our reality because mm. it negates Jesus. Hmm. And I'm telling yeah, it's you, a common, it's very become, common. Yes, they don't believe in science, and I tell them, I, I, you know, they get mad. I don't care. <laughs> Jesus is a myth. He was constructed at the Council of Nicaea by the Emperor Constantine. I can tell you how Christianity was invented. How December 25th was voted on as his birthday because it was the winter solstice. I can tell you the whole history, because, but see, they can't accept that, because if I accept that, it won't fit into this man stepped out of space and created two people and gave them Anglo names, <laughs> my people, let <that's> go, <laughs> and gave them, look, and robbed women of the one thing men are always jealous of. Let me let you on the script, because a lot of brothers won't tell you this. Men are very jealous of women. And let me tell you why. Mm. I ain't talking about gay, straight, nothing. Men are very jealous of women. And let me tell you why. Because you amaze us and we know we can't be you. If, 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 if you look at any dominant, subdominant relationship, you will see that what's really happening, you said it yourself earlier, they want to take on the characteristic of the oppressed. Yes. And let me tell you something. It amazes men that women give birth. It amazes men that women have this power mm-hmm. give us life, that they control it. You know, we, we vote on women's genitals, what can go in and what can come out, and your body belongs to me. I had a friend that told me, you can't rape your wife. We'll come back to that in a minute. And I'm going to show you how you get to that ignorance. But back to my The problem here is that we constructed these identity spaces in such a way that we don't see how we are functioning within the Melinda. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the church has become so implicit in that reality that I've seen full grown black people with PhDs and RIKs and LMJs who would tell you they still believe that narrative. Mm. And it's a lie. It's a construct. If you want to get real deep, I can get into the sociolinguistics of it and tell you how you can't write something unless there's human life already because language is a functioning creation of humans. But they rob women. 
He creates a man, but he's the what? What? But the woman comes from me. What? 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 So really, <laughs> white men named Adam from Anglo societies are the reason you're here. I, I'm telling you. I'm telling. I tell you. It's like man. Look. Look. They've taught us the one thing that we should value. Mankind began in Africa. Mm. But they don't want to believe that because right. it gets rid of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I love hearing you speak. <laughs> you got um, a lot. So I love hearing you speak. You got a, you got a lot oh, of, I love you. I love your opinions. I love you. your stories. I really love what you have to you. say. Um, but before we thank wrap you. up. I'm glad Stephanie connected us. Yes, me too. Me too. I'm so glad. But before we I'm wrap up. Promote my book too. Yes, 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 yes. So the last question I want to ask you is, how do we move forward in this country in order to try to dismantle systemic racism? We need to give black people where the white people have finally got it. So equal that, footing, that, that equal that footing. We're set up systemic, uh, politicized, uh, polarizing structures, and that those infrastructures have become the lens through which we view reality such that we don't even see the lens anymore. Yeah. And that that lens is, we are all looking at the world through that white, male, Christian, biosex, heterosexist gaze. It's not a reality we create, it's the lens itself. Now, black, white people, not all of them, of course, but the ones that are out there get that. That's what I teach. You, you're experienced, you, this is how I am in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. I, no, Exactly. I said, don't come in here telling me you don't know white privilege and what it means to be white, because I'll show you who you are. Right. Okay, I will. Right, right, I'll show right. you. Okay. But this is my point. To get to the space you're talking about, we have to get black people there, and we're not going to get them there. Let me tell you why. I teach at the University of Nebraska, so I, I think our student, black student population is like 3 4% or something like that. Okay. It, don't you think it's interesting? that we have a black studies department at Nebraska, but we don't have one at Alabama State University at HBCU where I attended school in Montgomery, Alabama, where the civil rights movement took place, but they don't have a black studies department. You can get a degree in black studies at Harvard and Yale and Stanford, but there's not an HBCU hmm. that has black studies in it. And I ask people, I don't you think it's kind of weird that you're here in Alabama at one of his historic HBCUs in the midst of the civil rights movement, but we don't teach black studies where mm. Martin Luther King marched? Don't you think it's interesting that Mississippi Valley, uh, right there in the heart of Mississippi, where Emerson, they don't have black studies, and Texas A&M and North Carolina a and Wow, you have black studies at all these white schools, but you don't have no black schools. Let me tell you why. I know, isn't that interesting? Okay, you would think of nobody else that damn HBCU would leave. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. They don't. Believe it or not, it goes back to Jesus again. But see, what what people in the academic world understand, see, the general population thinks black studies is black history. Right. Black right. studies examines class, gender, sexuality, and all of those variants. You know, I, I used to teach a course called uh, um, uh, Gender, Sexuality, and the Black Experience. In other words, we're not just looking at the historical narrative. We're looking at the gender narrative. Mm -hmm. We're saying humans started in Africa, and we do the whole fish mammal thing to show you that we're the 
Uh, not, uh, it's racist to open too, but but life began there, and they don't want it there mm. huh. because they don't want us. They at HBCU we don't have LGBT experience. We don't have that being analyzed. We don't talk about science, and if we do, you just talk about it and then you put it over there in the closet because you don't want it to actually absorb. Because HBCUs don't have them. They're trying to preserve a theological narrative. And Black studies disrupt it. Mm. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, that is, it, is, it is surprising to hear. Yeah, but think about it. An HBCU, you can't get, you can get a PhD in it. Yes, I. Yes, I. Remember, that's why Cornell West left, because he made that rap album and stuff. Harvard offers a night in, night in hip hop, in rap, hmm. a PhD. But black schools won't touch black studies. Well, that's, uh, I'm, that's really shocking. I'm like surprised to hear that, especially at HBECUs. Huh, I'll have to look into that, though. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. But before we wrap, I'd love for you to tell our listeners what you're working on next. And if there's anything you'd like to have that want to plug, I know you have a book coming out. So please, please share. Please share. Okay. Howard has a little black studies going on there. Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to start by first uh, my book, Waiting for the Citizen Killer, just flying up the charts. Okay. And uh, and thank you, by the way. I don't think I really adequately thank you for A, having me on the show, and B, telling me that you appreciate my voice and what I'm yes, trying to offer. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very appreciative of that, Melinda, because as you were finding my book, I didn't come up in a world where I always felt validated. And I tell people all the time, mm. when people validate you and show you acts of kindness, it's a gift to you. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Of course. Uh, whereas this is not a strict autobiography, uh, it's called a, a, a fictional memoir. It's okay. very based on my life, and it, it it follows the journey of Jamal McCoy from the age of five, young black queer boy growing up in the deep south, like me, grew up in a housing project, uh, was not the norm. Was you know, I I I, I and, and shaping the character. One of the things that I did because. Uh, and I, I won't be graphic because I don't know how your show goes, but uh, let me say that um, it was an interesting experience growing up in a world uh, as a black queer child. Um, I grew up in a like nasty, filthy housing project called Roger Williams, and it was nicknamed Brick City because mm. it was just this big growing. Uh, my brother died of a crack overdose sitting at the kitchen table. My sister got pregnant when she was 13 and 15. It, it was like total dysfunction there. And the funny thing is, you know, uh, uh, the reason I, I have to say to you that I appreciate your kindness. I grew up in a world where the one thing that made me distinct was my sissy marker, which was my intelligence. Mm. Like, you know, even being smart, for a black boy was part of was part of how I was separated. Yeah, you know, because I was an effeminate boy. I long before I even knew what sexuality was, Melinda. You know, I was called a sissy and a fag, and I, and I didn't even know what that meant. I, 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 of course, as I got older, I came to learn that, but I, I didn't even know what that meant. And I remember my brother used to say the most 
dehumanizing thing to me mm. long before I even knew what they were. And um, when your life has been defined that way, and, and, and you've always been treated that way by everyone. I was always treated that way by the lowest of black people think they're better than a fag. Right. The lowest. My my brother was a dope addict on the street. We were sitting home one time, they shot our house up. He was a heroin addict first. We just had horrible things. But everybody, everybody made it clear that you knew that if you're a fag, everyone has the right to talk about you. Mm. The lowest of people can come up to you and tell you. I, I mean, and I've had that experience. I, I, I remember once, I had a PhD. And I, uh, I had just finished um, uh, Mizzou in 96, and I, I was a professor at Wyoming. And so uh, I went down to Denver, because uh, that was the closest city. I had a partner at the time. And they uh, uh, they had this place where you said, like, it was called Scoops. They, you know, like, they, uh, it was a Chinese, like a buffet place, but mm-hmm. it, they give you a big scoop of everything for a dollar. So every time we would drive from Laramie down there, like, that was our treat to go to Scoops. So we go to Scoops and um, get out of the car. And there was this uh, black, you know, he was a homeless person. And he was just outside the thing. And uh, he was, you know, begging for money and stuff. So uh, Robert, that was his name. Robert and I had this thing where, you know, we we always tried to have like this connection. So when so we liked this place so much that we had this little thing that every time we went, we go, oh, we're here. And we're grab each other, uh, like, so it was coming down. So we get out of the car and the homeless guy's there. And so I'm like, uh, I, 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 I went to put some money. And he said, oh, not for you, fag. Because mm. mm. he saw us in the car. On the street, homeless. He saw me hug Robert, and when I got out to give him some money, a PhD with money and status and, and all that stuff, and I, he said, not from you, fag. Wow. Now, this is my point. Not a feel sorry for me story. I'm telling you that that idea, ideology is inextricably bound to black experience. Mm. Children, I've had children, seven, eight years old, say things like that. Yeah, wow. So, uh, I got one other thing to plug. So, my book, you read my book? Waiting for the Sissy Killer, yep. And let me say this, I know, you know, of course I'm plugging a book, but let me tell you something. It really is a powerful book. Mm. Go to Amazon, read the reviews. We'll, we'll bring you to your knees and make you a better person. I also have a sitcom I'm promoting. Great. And yeah, it's a great pilot. And we need to get that out. And you know, I won an Emmy for my um, Barack Obama documentary. You got to buy the reminder of yes. things are normal. And my feature film with Yes, congrats. Well, I love everything okay, that I you've accomplished. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You have. That's great. You're doing great things. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. My pleasure. And so where can uh, my listeners follow you? Do you have a website that they can go to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. You can follow me at my website, omawaleakintunde.com. Uh, you can just do a simple Google on Omawale and Most everything comes up. Uh, my Twitter is Omawale A. And my Instagram is also Omawali A. And uh, so just get in there and help a brother. And 
thank you so much for what you're doing. I, I, I really, really mean that. Um, we really need more venues like this. Yes, yes. That's why I started it, because I wanted to amplify voices that needed to be heard. So I'm really appreciative to you being on the show. So thank you. And thank you again for listening. Make sure you subscribe, and we'll talk to you real soon. Bye.